Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Phyllis Michael Wong to discuss her book, We Kept Our Towns Going, The Gossard Girls of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Thanks for tuning in. Michigan's Umper Peninsula is known for its natural beauty and severe winters, as well as the mines and forests where men labored to feed industrial factories elsewhere in the 19th and 20th centuries. But there were factories in the Upper Peninsula too, and women who worked in them. In We Kept Our Towns Going, Phyllis Michael Wong tells the stories of the Gossard Girls, women who sewed corsets and bras at factories in Ishpeming and Gwyn from the early 20th century all the way into the 1970s. As the Upper Peninsula's mines became increasingly exhausted and its stands of timber further depleted, the Gossard girls' income sustained both their families and the local economy. During this time, the workers showed their political and economic strength, including a successful four-month strike in the 1940s that capped an eight-year struggle to unionize. Drawing on dozens of interviews with the surviving workers and their families, this book highlights the daily challenges and the joys of these mostly first and second generation immigrant women. It also illuminates the way the Gossard girls navigated shifting ideas of what single and married women could and should do as workers and as citizens. From cutting cloth and distributing materials to getting paid and having fun, Wong gives us a rare, ground-level view of piecework in a clothing factory from the women on the sewing floor. Phyllis Michael Wong has held roles as a historian, an educator, and a 30-year member of the university-level academic world, including as First Lady at Northern Michigan University in 2004 to 2012 and at San Francisco State University from 2012 until 2019. Phyllis, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Kurt, thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here, and it's an even bigger honor to speak on behalf of these incredible women, strong, strong women, humble women. It really is. I'm really excited to hear about these strong and humble women and to hear the story of the Gosser girls in Upper Michigan. I wonder if we could start with just a little bit of um, your own story. How did you come to this subject and what did you find there that captured your attention? Well, the truth is that in 2010, the seeds for writing about the history of women and industry in Michigan's Upper Peninsula were planted. It was a very interesting presentation that I made in March for Women's History Month, in which I had invited and brought a number of former Gossard workers to uh, the presentation who spoke during the presentation. And then members of the audience at one point wanted to ask them questions. So we had wonderful conversations as each of the, the women spoke and they asked questions. During one of the women who spoke, there it, it became clear that there was a difference of perspective by one of the other women who were there. And I'm a pretty observant person. So I could see in the audience that, you know, they they heard it, they were interested in it. And so I interpreted what I saw in a very positive way and made remarks to the audience about the importance of having diverse collective 
voices when we speak about history. History is not one person's, not necessarily one person's perspective, but a history such as this, in which we want to know the history of a factory and the women that work there, it really was important to engage diverse voices. And that exchange between the women workers and the audience paying attention stayed with me. And in the ensuing weeks, very few weeks, in fact, I knew that that's what I needed to do. I hadn't planned on doing it, but I knew that that's what I needed to do. And I also, at that particular presentation at the end, when the audience came up to talk to the women that were there, I also spent some time talking to some people in the audience. And one woman came up to me and brought me a box. And she insisted that I had to have this box. This was not unusual. People often gave me things. And I always assured people that I would be delivering the contents of whatever they gave me to the regional history center. Well, in the box was remnant material from the factory in which it was obvious that someone at some point had tried to put together a gossard quilt. And so those pieces there spoke to me. What happened at the presentation stayed with me and I embarked. Yeah, on this journey that became your book. You know, it's fascinating in your answer that you are able to encapsulate so much of what it's like to read the book. Like you have this material history of the garments that folks were working on. You've got different perspectives from the different diverse women who worked in the factory and others. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your research process, because I think, like you said, like telling this story from multiple perspectives is something that your book does really incredibly well. How did you go about finding Gossard Girls and what was the interview process like? What was the work of assembling what ultimately became the material for the book? It started out, I approached a woman. I, as part of my work as First Lady, I made sure that I was part of the communities around me. And so I was invited frequently to the community of Ishpeming to socialize with a group of women who played bridge. And so I approached the woman who was hosting these events because I and another woman, I belonged to a study club. Another woman and I were, were um, doing some research on a woman who had organized workers, Gazard workers in the 40s. And she was a very politically active well-known woman in Marquette County. So my friend and I began doing research on Geraldine Gordon DeFont. And to get information on her, we had to interview people who we hoped would know about her organizing and the strike itself. I was responsible for interviewing the women for their memories of this particular period. I believe I interviewed probably about five or seven, something like that. I don't remember the number right now. And um, it turns out the very few, very few of them knew about, could offer any information about the strike or the organizing period. But I left that particular period with um, a burning, burning respect and curiosity for what these women did. And I wanted to know more. Their stories 
what I heard from their stories was amazing. And it made me want to know more and to learn more. And very slowly, someone, I'd be at an event or I'd be at the grocery store somewhere, and I would have an opportunity to say, well, you know, I've been working on this project, and I would get a name of an individual. These were people I did not know until I interviewed them. They were strangers, but not strangers after I interviewed them. They were wonderful, wonderful women. So it was sort of this word of mouth that kept building and building and building. And that's sort of how I was able to speak to so many people and hear their stories, not just the women workers, but um, businessmen, relatives, just average community people. Yeah, I think that that is something that it's so easy to forget, like the the life of a factory and what it does for a whole community, you know, for not just the economics of the community, but the family, you know, the home economics of the community, the people's individual lives. I wonder if we could start digging a little bit into the the history that you're dealing with, sort of, I think, by starting thinking about the factory itself. What was the Gossard factory? What did they produce? How did it end up in the Upper Peninsula? And, you know, what's the kind of capsule history of the place where those people were working or related to? Well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just say the H.W. Gossard Company was a company that manufactured women's undergarments. It was an American company. It is now a company that's based out of the UK, but it was started by an American, a man who was a salesman. He would travel to Paris annually in search of the newest fashions. His name was Henry Gossard. And so during one of his trips, he happened to see a revolutionary new garment, a front lacing garment. And somehow that inspired him. And so he purchased some before he went back to America and then figured out how much he could sell them for and then discovered he was a good businessman in the beginning and sold them. And then the business just kept growing and growing and growing. And by 1920, the Gossard Company was still doing gangbusters. It had factories in Canada, in Australia, South America, lots of different places, but most of them were in the Midwest. Anyway, it was looking to expand again. And coincidentally, at that particular time in Ishpeming, the businessmen were interested in finding new businesses for their, for their city. And in particular, one of their very large buildings, which was empty. Its owner had died and the subsequent family members couldn't keep it running. So they went and made a pitch in Chicago. Honestly, it took a very, very short time for the businessmen to make plans, make their pitch, have representatives come north to the UP and make their pitch. And what was the pitch exactly? I was wondering about not just what they were manufacturing, but how it fits into the culture of of women's undergarments at the time. You talked about a front lacing corset, I assume, right? What differentiated that technology and what were they pitching that they would come to the UP and manufacture? So the difference between a front lacing corset and the ones that came before, which were laced in the back, and why it was so revolutionary was that a woman now, she could decide how 
tightly she wanted to pull on this corset, how snug she wanted it to be. And instead of having someone else do it, she got to do it herself. In those days, there were a lot of different reasons why those who manufactured women's undergarment wanted to make so many of them. One, obviously, is for profit. But the other two is that there was a belief by some that there were some health benefits from wearing corsets. So it was a, you know, a, a number of things that influenced um, Mr. Gossard to, number one, to do the front lacing corset, which would, was relatively new in the United States. And why Upper Michigan, a place where Mother Nature, not human nature, abounds? Some people don't think about that, but that's an important thing to remember that Mother Nature, not human nature, abounds. But what else abounds in the UP is lots of minerals, minerals that were um, men. So they employed lots of men and logging. So both of those were two very important industries. And if you have miners and loggers, you have families. If you have families, you have wives, sisters, mothers, cousins, female cousins. So the opportunity for having a large factory employing lots of women was greater in this particular area of the UP. Other places like in Indiana and Wisconsin, they didn't have this kind of situation. Yes, there were factories there, and aside from a couple of them, they didn't last as long as the ones in the UP. And I'm not sure exactly why, other than I think that this, again, having this lots of mining and logging, again, you had this large population of people to employ. You know, that's really interesting. I feel like I'm accustomed to hearing the kind of story about women in the workforce that goes like, oh, the men went off to war in World War II, and then the women started working in the factories, and then we had women's lib when the men came back and tried to displace them from jobs that they had become accustomed to. Is it something revolutionary about Gossard, or is, is it sort of is there some forward thinking there in the desire to employ women or was it just a business strategy? I think I'm going to leave the answer to the, someone who has a much richer background in reading in that particular area. There is a part of me that does think that, you know, Mr. Gossard and his company were rather forward thinking people and good business people too, by the same token. So uh, I'm not really sure. That's fair. It's, I mean, it is an interesting paradox and it, you could see what the appeal was if that's the target. Like you have all, you know, all these men who are busily doing whatever labor they're doing. It's a, a good explanation for why you would end up up in Northern Michigan in an unexpected place, I think, to find an undergarments factory. Yeah, I, I suppose so. It's also true that I think I speak about this a little bit in the first chapter of the book where I cite a study in which the number of women working in Ishpeming was, you know, it wasn't huge, but it wasn't small either. Women were in grocery stores, restaurants, but there were no factories really that employed, largely employed women. And the Gossard factories, I would say 85, 90% of the employees were women. Could you say a little bit about what kind of work those women were doing in the Gossard factory? Well. An undergarment factory is, one of my Gossard girls told me many, many, many times, I was a good student of hers, 
lots of things happened. It's the entire production of making a woman's undergarment. And this is a, was a large factory. I'm speaking of Ishpeming right now, in which um, you had hundreds of machines. And so three times a week, raw material would come. And so that material would then be cut on site. Patterns would be cut on site. And then you had set up the um, largest percentage of women employed there were what I will call peace workers. These are women who would, one person in the beginning would do one specific job, that stuff would then move on to that next step in the assembly of the undergarment. So every facet of the assembly process, including including the shipping and delivery and all that kind of stuff, would have happened in a self-contained factory such as this. I mean, I suppose it's worth mentioning what a complicated undergarment, of course, it is. Like we're not talking about a single piece of fabric, but there's there's laces and stays and all kinds of technology sewn into one of those garments. Yeah. It's interesting that you would mention that because I think you make me think about one of the first things in, in the early years that the women would make would was a what's known as a garter belt, which only had eight pieces to it. So it was a very simple assembly process. Again, these women, someone would do one thing and be moved on to the next person and the next person. But that was rather small. Many, many undergarments, corsets and bras or brassiers um, had multiple pieces, 20. Someone, one person might just attach a snap. Someone just might attach the edge binding where where things were clasped. Drilled down, I guess, to, I was going to use the word minutia, but that's not really the right word. But you get the idea that there's, there's many, many, many steps. And it's tedious and physically demanding work too, right? I mean, to stand all day and, and affix you know, one snap to the same strap over and over and over all day is a, is a real taxing kind of employment. That's a very, very good point, Kurt. Focus, because you were working with machines, industrial machines that were quite different from one's home pedal machine or even years later, an electric machine. These machines went fast. Some were very loud. Most of the assembly of a garment was done. A woman was seated at a chair. I imagine, I don't know because I have not seen all of the the machines, some machines, I suspect uh, women were standing as they were operating the machine, but the vast majority were not. They were long tables in the second and the third floor of Ishpeming's factory. In Gwyn, there were two floors also that they had that, but it was a much smaller production scale there. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Phyllis Michael Wong, author of We Kept Our Towns Going, The Gossard Girls of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. You mentioned in one of the earlier responses as we're thinking about the kind of work that the Gossard Girls were doing in the factory, that they were sort of doing everything from assembly to you know packaging to distribution. What about management? Was the factory managed by women? Did they have leadership roles or um, was it structured, you know, sort of patriarchally? I would say that there, there was one woman that I was aware of and she was involved in production. So she would have, a production manager would have been 
um, maybe below the, uh, uh, obviously, the manager and the human resource person at that particular time. Women, very, very, very few women held management positions. Mid-management, if you want to classify someone as a floor girl, someone who managed those in her particular section, a department head was above a floor lady, probably a department head would have supervised all the women in seaming or all the women in wide binding. And a floor girl helped out, but, but the department head had more responsibilities and met more with the production manager, the woman. So yeah, there were very, very, very few. In one of my interviews, a woman talked about a rare time in which she actually worked in the shipping room doing work there. So that, that was unusual. Women did not use the elevator. You used stairs, you walked up the flight of stairs. So there was, you know, there certainly was a separation, but I don't think the separation was because it was men and women. I think the separation was merely because these were the kind, this was the kind of work that was being done here. And these things got transported here and there. So, but certainly at that particular time, the expectations of what women were expected to do, not only at work, but within the wider world were different. The options were different then than they are today. These women really did have to navigate through a society that was different. They were for, very forward thinking and it, it required a lot of, uh, how shall I say this, strength because you were doing things that culturally you weren't expected to be doing. You weren't expected to keep the family going. You were not expected to work when your husband was off of work, at least culturally. Now, in the UP, they, you know, the women obviously thought differently because many of them went to work, not only when their husbands were laid off or ill or the women were, the women's husbands died, but um, just because they wanted to work. So you have this mixture of reasons, what motivates people to seek employment. And the bottom line of all of this is that when someone makes their own money, changes happen. I wonder if we could pursue that thought a little bit further. I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that the factory was offering employment opportunities for like single mothers and, and widows and folks who had maybe never gotten married, like that there's more to a woman's life in the early 20th century than just kind of waiting around to be married or keeping the household. I wonder about, you know, you said that when someone earns their own money, that brings you know, cultural change or individual personal change. What did working at the Gossard factory mean to the Gossard girls? Sort of maybe some specific examples or kind of generally speaking, what did that lifestyle afford outside of work? Well, depending upon your socioeconomic level in your family, um, I know there's a discussion about that. But within the community, in both communities, Gwyn and Ishpeming, having a job at the Gossard was highly respected. There were no other jobs. First of all, there were limited employment opportunities for women in both communities and the outlying communities, limited. And if you scored a job at the factory, especially a piece worker's job, you made a lot 
of money. A lot. Phyllis, when you say peace worker, were they paid by the peace or was it an hourly kind of thing? Many of the assembly steps were um, by the peace. Many, many of them. There were some hourly workers, but they really would not have been called peace workers per se. A boxer, for example, was considered a peace worker. Someone who put zippers in was a peace worker. The, the company established a minimum rate. At one point they did. And then if a worker was fast enough and savvy enough and managed to produce more than the minimum rate, well, then that woman made more above and beyond the minimum, which posed some problems. Take yourself back to this period when um, the roles of men and women, who are the breadwinners, and you have a woman who's very, very fast and can make a lot of money. Not all men espouse women making more than men. I wish that I could argue that that has changed today, but I feel like we still have some of the lingering uh, effects of that attitude. What, what was the peace rate? Like what, what was a potential, you know, if, if you were really good at boxing or at putting in zippers? Yeah, that's a really hard question because the rates changed often. But I had heard about women who would make $200 a week. Wow. And that would have been in the later years, of course. Again, you know, they had thought about what they needed to do to maximize their work. And some were quite, quite good. Yeah. And so to return to a previous question, what did that afford, you know, in the, in the culture of Ishpeming, when you, when you have those sort of earning potential, how did it affect cultural life? Well, it certainly helped the town, the town businessmen, the women shop there, they spent their money there. So it helped the towns immensely. And nowhere was that more vivid, shown more vividly than when the factory closed in the ensuing years. But specifically, what did they do with their money? That's, that's a good question. Some, depending upon their situation, some moms were able to buy things for their children they would never have been able to afford. What would that might be? That might be a dress for a prom. Other special things that they might have. One woman was able to use her money to help her husband expand his business. Now, if you think about that, a woman is helping her husband, and this would have been in the late 40s, late 40s, expand his grocery business so that he could sell appliances. Powerful, powerful. And if you are that woman who's been, who was able to do that, that's the point of pride. You were doing something. You were taking care of your family. You were taking care of your community. That's what we really want to do, you know, many of us. I wonder if this would be a good time to talk a little bit about the women, the Gossard girls' uh, efforts to unionize and the kind of attempt to, you know, harness some more power for the workers and to, you know, have collective bargaining. Can you say a little bit about like how that came about, what the culture was like at the factory that led them to want to, you know, have a workers' union? So what motivated women workers to want to unionize. I think there was a twofold thing happening at this particular time. Number one, nationally, is the ILGWU 
was at this particular time in a position to um, increase its membership. And so they did so. This particular factory was far up north. Nobody really knew much about it until at a meeting at the ILGWU, I believe it was uh, Geraldine, her name was Geraldine Gordon at the time, informed leadership of this factory because at the time, Geraldine was a business agent for the ILGWU and an agent for, I believe it was the Logan's Logansport factory. Um, that and the Ishpeming factory were the largest factories in this particular area of the Midwest. And so Geraldine did not come up. This occurred actually probably in about 1940, 1941. The earliest records that I have that there was an interest in organizing the factory way up north was a letter, some letters that I that I read. And so that they began, they came up, and what they discovered was that um, really at that particular time, at least from the letters, and the letters, you can only glean so much from a letter. They're not long, they're short. It was a very large factory, and um, they were doing lots of work. And by and large, the women, the women were by and large happy, but there were also, there was also worries by some of the women that management would be changing some of the prices and things weren't exactly right. Or if they had a, if the women had an, an issue, they had problems resolving those issues equitably. No one was going to speak for them. Who would advocate for them? So that began quietly and grew and grew. And over the course of eight years, there was three, maybe four attempts to um, unionize. Each time, for a lot of different reasons, it failed until 1948 when the women did vote to uh, have a union shop. That began the process, in other words. So the sentiment is kind of interesting because, you know, here, this is a, an area where you have mines and you have unions. So there was not this expansive, pervasive interest in unionizing. Why? I'm not exactly sure. It could be, there are lots of reasons one could surmise, and that's all that I'm doing right now is surmising, okay? One is that it's you're influenced by people around you who believe that unions are a benefit and others that believe that unions are not a benefit. There's also sometimes the fear factor. Some people rightly or wrongly assume that if you come out and say that you are for a union, you may jeopardize your job. And these women were, you know, they valued their job. They knew what they could do with the money they made. They could make a difference in many ways. So it's, you know, all of this was building and building and building. And then at some point, the ILGWU sent up Geraldine Gordon and a woman with great experience and actually a woman, too, of a great passion for what I call social justice. But when she came up, she also came up because there was another woman, Ruth Crane, from the factory, who also, um, I never got to interview Ruth Crane. Um, she had passed, as, as did Geraldine, before I found out about this particular history. But I believe both of those women um, were soul sisters, if I can use that word, that moniker. 
because Ruth Crane, like Geraldine, really had a passion for social justice, making sure that all of the women were treated fairly. And if they had a grievance, that there was someone there to listen to them and perhaps resolve it. It seems like pretty remarkable feat to organize a workplace of that size comprised mostly of women in the 1940s. They must have been very strong and and motivated women indeed to pull it off. I think you just right then, Kurt, you have reinforced my firm belief in these women, strong, determined, and humble women interested in taking care of their families and their communities. Obviously, making money empowered them politically, socially, otherwise. It empowered them. But also, too, the factory was a place that was, that was their second family, their gossard family. The women sat in the same seats day after day. They knew the people around them. They were family. They did things at church oftentimes. You know, they'd sit with each other. On the weekends, some of them will go out to camps because camps were are very important social places in the Upper Peninsula. So we know that the union ultimately succeeded after having been voted down a couple of times. I know that the Gossard girls were also part of a large strike during this period. Could you talk a little bit about that struggle? Like what what kind of uh, resistance did they face from management? What kinds of things did they have to do in order to get the union on its feet? As I mentioned earlier, the organizing was about eight years. It was about eight years because from the get-go, management did not want a union shop. They were willing to increase uh, women's uh, salaries, raise the raise, but they did not want a union shop. And um, the union would not agree to that. So what did management do to, I guess, dissuade some of the workers from um, being pro-union? Well, they actually would talk to some of the girls. Some of them would get fired because maybe one or two of the pieces that they put together weren't done perfectly. So that could become an opportunity. That was an opportunity in some instances in which the worker was threatened with termination. And if a worker was informed enough, she knew her rights and that would not have happened. So that was one way in which management tried to dissuade pro-union workers. When management was hiring, because the 40s was a boom, boom decade for the factory, when the management was hiring, and some, again, in some of my um, letters, I learned about management would ask questions of the applicants prior to hiring them if they were going to be pro-union. So, the, so management would, would be involved that particular way. Sometimes management was walking around, and um, again, the, the feeling that management is right there behind me watching me working is not fun. It bothers a worker. So in the actual strike itself, which was about 16 weeks strike, there there were a number of things that management did. The first thing probably is that they took the unfinished work from the Ishpeming factory over to the Gwyn factory. And um, that was not to be done. And so 
Strikers would try and block management from going in. Strikers observed management dropping bundles from the window so that uh, they could take those bundles over to the Gwyn factory and get the work done. So those were little things that they did. And then at one point when, um, actually this was in June, some of the strikers were blocking access to the garage in which a car would have been used to transport finished or unfinished merchandise to the other factory. And the manager was uh, not pleased. And what happened as a result of that is that those women were arrested. So, you know, those were some of the things that they did. That's a really good overview. And there's a lot more in the book about the organizing efforts and the strike and and folks will, will have to dive a little bit deeper into that history in the actual book itself. As we sort of start to run out of time here, Phyllis, I wonder if maybe a good way of wrapping up would be to ask if you could tell me a little bit about this idea, the kind of abstract idea of the Gossard girl. You know, you sort of talked a little bit about what work means to these to these women and how they came to like think of themselves as part of a larger culture. But the way that you presented in the book that it was really something special and unique to be a Gossard girl. You know, how did they adopt that moniker and what did it come to mean to the folks who worked in the factory, um, you know, in the years while they worked there and, and then in their lives later on? When I started interviewing women, often I would hear the term, the Gossard girl. I didn't know what it meant. And so at one point in one with one of my interviewees, I asked her, I said, what's this about Gossard Girl? Why do you, when did this happen? Why do you call each other Gossard Girl? And she couldn't really say other than to say that probably in about the 1940s when she began working, actually she ended up working at both factories. She said, that's when we started using the term Gossard Girl. And then she realized that this was a special term because they had an elevated status within the town by virtue of what they did. They were so many of them, Kurt, if you were there at lunchtime or, or at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, you took your life in your own hands. The streets were clogged with people. There were lots of them. Collectively, these people were empowered. They, they could get things done. And I suspect that and the, the term girl, I know some people today, girls are probably referred to the four-year-old to the 19-year-old, maybe, or teenager. But that was the term that was used. It was a term of honor, if you will. And I actually have chosen to capitalize girl when I use the term Gossard girl, because I felt, again, from talking to this one person and others, that the, there was a deep respect, not just amongst the workers, but amongst the community themselves and the families themselves of what these women did. I wonder, Phyllis, if maybe we could talk a little bit about what happened in Ishpeming and Gwyn when those factories closed down. How, how did it affect the culture? How did it affect opportunities for individuals? You know, sort of, you know, what's the final chapter of the story uh, as those as that industry ends up ultimately in China? Yeah. Wow. That was a very, very difficult time. The Gwyn factory was the first factory to close in the 1960s. The reasons why it closed are probably multifaceted. The industry itself was changing. Costs were increasing, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so they ended up closing that factory in Gwyn. And that was in a town of 1,000. So 
Imagine the impact of a factory that employed women in a town where the women could walk to work. They had their meals there. They spent their money there. That was a huge influence. They, they took care of their families. It was, it was very sad. Again, in Gwyn, just as in Ishpeming, it was a point of pride to be a gazard girl. You could do a lot. You had lots of respect. You know, you were more than, you had two jobs, yes, but you, you know, in those days, that was even more special. And in Ishpeming, the news of it in 1976, no one thought that it would close. But again, you know, the manufacturing was going to other countries where it was cheaper to manufacture them. And even in culturally, in the women's world, women were changing their their views about undergarments, etc. It was a very, very, very sad time in Ishpeming when news was confirmed that the factory would be closing. And when it did close, there actually was an effort in Ishpeming for women took it upon themselves to see if they could bring another industry that employed women. So there was an effort by these women to do it. It didn't materialize, nor did any other efforts, I would say, by the community itself, the business community, um, because after a few years, the, the, the uh, factory, the building itself was a mall. So it did undergo some, some changes and was successful for a while. But the fact that you never had an industry that employed as many people, primarily women, uh, made a huge difference. And to this day, there is no industry that employs as many women. It was the largest women-dominated industry in the Upper Peninsula. And what happened to those women? Did they stay, you know, the ones that you met that you that you interviewed for the book, did they largely stay in the UP? Did they migrate elsewhere, you know, seeking other work? What was the kind of general sense of what happened to them after that became impossible working there? A good question. I don't really have the numbers. I have a sense though that some people did move, but most people stayed. And when they stayed, that sense of family that I alluded to earlier, the Gazard family stayed and the women, you know, some of the women found jobs within Ishpeming. Nothing paid as much as it paid at the Gazard, but some of them had to work. So they found what jobs they could, but it was, it, it was different than it was at the factory. Many people will say um, they're sorry that the factory closed. Even today, those that remember, they remember the vitality of their communities during this period, the vitality of them, so many different businesses. Well, Phyllis, I love that you use that word vitality because it it is such a good kind of catch term for thinking about the book. It really does shine this sort of light on the vitality of the Upper Peninsula in this period, the vitality of the, the women who worked in the factory, the work that they were able to do, the community that they were able to be a part of because of that work. And I just have really enjoyed talking with you about, about this research and, and about your book. And um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, Kurt, I am especially grateful to you and to MSU Press for reaching out to me and placing their trust in this particular story.
the women, the, the descendants, the relatives, the communities of these guys and girls should be mightily proud, proud, proud of what these women did. I am certainly proud of them, and I'm happy to talk about them. Phyllis Michael Wong's book, We Kept Our Towns Going, The Gossard Girls of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. If you're in the Michigan region, Phyllis will be speaking in Gwynn, Michigan on April the 12th, on April the 13th at 6.30 at the Marquette Regional History Center in Marquette, Michigan. You can also catch a talk from Phyllis. And on Thursday, April the 14th, sometime in the afternoon at Northern Michigan University, there will be another presentation. Please check out the show notes for this podcast for more information about these talks. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milne. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of Michigan State University Press and the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.